1: To welcome Dr. David DeAndre to the show. I'm really interested to chat with you. I think we have a lot in common. You're an author and you've done a lot of other things, former missionary and seminary Bible college teacher and all that. So I'm sure we have a lot to talk about. So welcome. Uh, can I just call you David? Is that okay? That's perfect. And thank you for having me on the show. I noticed right away we met on Facebook through the Fireside Creators. I think it was their page. And then from there, we've friended each other. And I've read a lot of your posts. You do a lot of writing what are you working on at the moment? Because I've heard you are you were a life coach and all these other things, but what are you doing currently?
0: Yes, I'm currently finishing up a book, which is a critique of Calvinism and its toxic effects on our emotional well-being and on our relationships, because mm-hmm. you view the world negatively, first about yourself, and then there's a lot of guilt in your worldview. And that has a very toxic effect on relationships, uh, the attraction to guilt. But it's also going into the historic conversation about Calvinist, the the tulip, you know, Mm -hmm. and then also about uh, how a lot of prominent Christian leaders are leaving the church and viewing calvinism in a different way uh deconstructing if you want to call it mm-hmm. so i include a lot of modern conversations about these topics as well i'm fascinated to get into that at some point point. one of the
1: things i noticed right away when i started reading your posts on facebook is that you and i have a lot in common so we're both expats you're living in canada now I'm living over here in the UK. Both of us were from America originally. Have you lived in Canada sort of from from moving from the States or what was your story before that?
0: Well, right. Uh, When I finished up my doctorate uh, and I couldn't find an academic position that would be satisfying and that could support the family, we decided, my wife and I, we decided to move to Kiev and work with a mission that was involved in classical music as an outreach there was a large orchestra and choir and uh my wife at the time was a nurse and there was a medical aspect to the mission so we moved to kiev which is really in the news a lot these days Mm -hmm. as you know uh and it was there i had a midlife crisis broke up left the mission we can talk about that if you want and Then after that, a few years later, I moved to Belgium and was a freelance teacher in Brussels, uh, primarily teaching English, but then I worked into the topics that I really know, especially music history, for example, and uh, literature as well. The, The biblical part was that just when I left Christianity for Good in Kiev, I was asked to teach the Bible at a Christian university Founded by missionaries. And again, we can talk about all that too. I, I didn't really know how to approach the courses, but uh, that's what gave me a lot of material for my book and for the posts and everything I do now. It, it was a, a way for me to look at the Bible with fresh eyes, not colored by my Bible education, my Bible college education. Mm-hmm. But so I lived in uh, Belgium for almost 10 years. And then I met a wonderful woman who lives in Canada. We met uh, on Facebook actually in a discussion group. Uh, she came to visit me, then we were definitely in love. So I went to visit her and just didn't go back. I stayed in Canada and we got married a few weeks later. And now I've been here almost five years and, and very happy to be here. When you say here, whereabouts in Canada?
1: Because it's not exactly a small place, is it?
0: (laughs) I know. Uh, A lot of Americans, and we can joke about Americans because we are. That's true. um, Oh, you're in Canada. What's the weather like up there? (laughs) Yeah. As if it's one place. I get that a lot. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm in Edmonton, Alberta. I'm in the Prairie States. Uh, For people in the States who don't know Canada that well, it's just above Montana.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, I've been to Montana many times, but I've never been no- more, more north of that. I've been to Vancouver several times in that yeah. area, BC, but I've sure. got friends in, you know, Halifax and Calgary and other places, of course, around Vancouver. So, one of my dreams is to take a big trip across Canada and sort of hit the major highlights and see friends along the way. So, that's hopefully on the cards. And I've got another stop to add. I can I can come to oh, sure. you know where you're at. That would be great to meet in person. Yeah, that would be really wonderful. So did you have a background in biblical studies? Then you talk about music history. Was that your primary sort of academic focus? You must have gone to Bible college, you said, too, at some point.
0: Right. Yeah, uh, I grew up in the home of a Baptist minister, so I'm a PK. And it was a natural thing for me to choose Bible college when it came time to choose after high school. And I had two options, whether to go to Wheaton College like my father.
1: And Billy Graham.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, actually, he went on a double date, I believe, with Billy Graham. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, or he knew Ruth Graham or something. I, I asked my mom about that recently, and I, I'm getting the facts confused, but there is some connection in any case. Uh, but we were living in Connecticut, and I had a girlfriend in Connecticut, and I didn't want to go so far away. So I chose Philadelphia College of Bible because our family was from Philadelphia. And in fact, my mom went to the original Philadelphia Bible Institute. And it was a good fit for me because uh, it was there I met my mentor who was the piano instructor and the teacher of musicology classes. And he encouraged me to switch over to being a music major. And I became a double major. So I have a degree in theology or Bible, so to speak, and a degree in piano performance. And then after finishing PCB, I became a minister of music for a few years, long enough to decide that wasn't for me. And then I went back to school. I went to grad school at Temple for a degree in music history. And that wasn't enough to get a a good job. And then... I got accepted at Yale University and did my PhD at Yale. Uh, And even then, by the time I finished Yale, they wanted a PhD plus publications to get your entry level job. And we had small children and it wasn't easy for me to finish the degree first of all, and then to get publications on top of that. So that's why we thought it was a good option to explore Living in a foreign country, and it was really interesting to be in the former Soviet Union, not too long after the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, That was a fascinating experience. Mm -hmm. But uh, so then I solidified all of my Bible training by teaching the Bible at at that Christian university for about seven years. And you know, you don't learn anything truly until you start teaching it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was able to take a fresh look at the biblical texts, and come up with an approach that really suited me at the time, and uh, I'm very happy to have had that experience. Mm -hmm. A good worthwhile experience, even though ironically you ended
1: up deconstructing. Well, going back to your earlier point, I can definitely resonate with you because it's so hard to find a job out in, outside of that theological sort of world, isn't it? If you've got mm-hmm. a master's and a PhD and everything from within that sort of world, because I did a PhD. I've, I've done a master's degree in theology, undergraduate. I went to Multnomah Bible College, which is very okay. similar to PCB, I think. Mm-hmm. We, had, we had a very similar sort of evang- evangelical sort of fundamentalist background coming mm-hmm. out of da- a lot of the a lot of the original founders of my bible college were dallas seminary graduates originally oh, so sure. that had that sort of flavor to it but it's so hard because i remember the la- one of the last jobs i applied for over here in the uk teaching practical theology there was 400 applicants for yeah. one position that's 400 zero zero yes. yeah. applicants for one academic post i mean and with PhDs, with experience, with publications, you can't even get a shortlisted, you know, on these kind of job interviews. Exactly. So very, very difficult. So that's one of the reasons why I'm not teaching theology anymore. That and I deconstructed like you. So that does help. as yeah.
0: well. well, that's refreshing to hear because the uh, my Yale degree has sort of been um, a yoke. Mm -hmm. around my neck you know and and people think or at least i put a lot of pressure on myself well what are you doing with this degree uh but i don't see life that way anymore like you have to put one stone on top of the other and get a giant pyramid of a successful career i think life is more about being presented certain challenges and then we meet the challenge and figure out what is required to do that challenge successfully. And my life has been like that, a series of challenges, whether it's that degree or learning how to be a minister of music, for example. I didn't know anything about that. Um, Learning how to live in a foreign country, learning the language, now learning how to write a good book. Uh, These are the, I see it more like that. So uh, it takes the pressure off of me to see it that way and it's a big
1: accomplishment too because even though i mean i teach carpentry and multi skills to military veterans at a college over here in england so that's mm-hmm. what i do it has nothing to do in, in in that respect with my academic background however i've said this before my role as a teacher i, I see myself in a very much of a pastoral role even though yeah. I, I don't you know obviously offer up religious advice I'm still taking care of these veterans, especially the ones with, with PTSD and things like that. So weirdly, I'm still seeing myself in that background I had as a pastor and a Bible college teacher, it does come in handy in that res- respect without the religious piece of course. So you yeah, have to look at that. the positives, and, don't you? And it was, a, yeah. it's a major accomplishment, isn't it? It's a feather in your cap to say, yeah, I did do a PhD, even though I'm not necessarily working in that field anymore.
0: Right. And it, what a phd gives you are the skills to do research Mm -hmm. to to think originally to take find your own approach and then you can apply that to just about anything you're involved in and you begin to uh to take a critical approach in a good way to everything you do
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and critical critical thinking like you say
1: researching academic writing those kind of things. I mean, I'm doing a teaching qualification, which again is hugely ironic because I have a PhD, but even then where I work, they said, no, that doesn't count toward an actual teaching qualification. Right. So I have to do research. I have to do all this. And I, as you say, you find that quite easy because you've done that, you know, and, you know, on a, on an interesting note too, I think coming out of evangelicalism and Christianity, you have to say, okay, what is it that I can take away from this? That's positive. One of the things too is that we understand the language. When I hear evangelicals speak, we know what they're talking about. We know the insider jargon. We've been there, and as you say, you have those skills to be able to think critically. So, in terms of deconstruction, even that could be seen as a positive.
0: Yeah, we we know where they are. Mm -hmm. They just don't know where we are. (laughs) And and the thing you learn very quickly is they don't really care. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) they don't want to know. You know, threatened by us for sure. Yeah, I've been told uh, by someone, uh, they said, I don't want your midlife crisis, I don't care, you know, and uh, at first you carry I don't know if you did but I carried my missionary mentality over into my new life, and tried to convert everybody to my new way of thinking. And I felt so excited about what I was learning and how it it just all wasn't true at all and all this stuff, but they didn't want to hear it. So now you have to take a more subtle approach and maybe ask a few provocative questions, if that, uh, it depends, you meet people where they are, and those that are really questioning, they're the people we can help because we know what they've been through and what Mm -hmm. they're going through. So we. Can be of help to those type of people.
1: It's so true, isn't it? They, they, I think, a lot of evangelicals they see us as like a an intellectual contagion. They don't want to catch it, like COVID. You know, you don't want to catch it. You don't want this thing. You really don't want it. And they, yeah, don't, don't confuse me. With, don't confuse me with the facts. Yeah, my mind is made up. Well, now going back to your time in the Ukraine. So this is when you're you're kind of you said you had a midlife crisis. You also deconstructed. Take us into that. What actually happened? It must have had something to do with you say you're teaching these courses. What exactly did that lead you to sort of deconstruct your your faith?
0: Yeah, it actually goes back a few years before uh, when I left my post as a minister of music and went to grad school. It was the first time in my life that I wasn't in a Christian environment and I wasn't a professional Christian if you know what I mean, Mm -hmm. Uh, and I thought, well, I have this golden opportunity to test everything I have believed and have been taught and see if it's true for me, and I was in a secular environment at Temple University, surrounded by really interesting, bright people, Uh, and in the music field, a lot of talented gay musicians, and you probably know about that too, Mm -hmm. that uh, they opened my mind they weren't the monsters I had been taught, they were. And I began to really enjoy my secular friends and some of them had come out of Catholicism and things like that. But uh, so I started to rethink everything and at that point, And the first thing was to start from the ground up, does God exist? And I went through that whole process. Uh, as, as a musician, especially a classical musician, those who who know classical music there's a lot of that type of music that is very transcendent and sort of carries you to another realm and i've always felt that the transcendent realm does exist so for me total atheism doesn't work i i appreciate my atheist friends who have reached that conclusion i'd prefer to, to say I'm more agnostic. I, I know there's something out there, but I can't really tell you what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then along the way, as I was in, at Temple, the first big uh, epiphany I had was about the non-existence of hell. Uh, for me, it all involved the physical body. The, it, I realized that for those tortures to work in hell, you would need a physical body to experience them, Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I'm not taking this body anywhere after it dies. <laughs> right. And unless someone someone's, someone's going to give me another one, you know. Uh, so hell didn't work for me. I threw that out. Then I stopped believing in the devil. And he never bothered me after that. Uh, but I didn't really have a lot of uh, pegs to put my hat on. And especially at Yale, again, being surrounded by highly intellectual secular people I was still trying to save them you know oh yeah I cringe cringe when I say that you know but uh I like my one of my professors who was Jewish we invited him over for dinner and of course I had to say the prayer before dinner and uh I don't think I tried to slip in the gospel I was too too bright for that yeah yeah.
1: I couldn't get away with that
0: Yeah, I was still kind of um, a missionary at that point. Uh, Then, But I didn't really know. I I read Raymond Moody's book on near-death experiences, and I was impressed by those that talk about being able to see their body during the procedures that were being done on their body. That really impressed me and made me feel that Consciousness can probably survive the death of the physical body. And that's about all I was going on at that time. Then going to Kiev as a missionary, uh, I hope you can appreciate this, but I felt like such a fraud. By that time, I was, and you know, we went to churches and raised support, and I knew all the words to say and Mm -hmm. and, the language. uh, The jingo stuff and the cliches. And we raised a lot of money. Uh, We raised about $40,000 in six months, Mm. which uh, was uh, uh, really on the strength of my father's connections as a Baptist minister. We contacted all of the people there. And uh, anyway, getting to Kiev, um, what sort of started to make everything hit the fan was the weekly prayer meeting with the missionaries and we would go around the circle. Uh, We would all be at someone's house. And in this case, we were at our big apartment. And it was a bit random. Anyone could pray whenever they wanted. And I was just sitting there thinking, this is all complete nonsense. It's like wishing things for a big Santa in the sky. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't do it. And when it came to the end and everyone had prayed, and I still hadn't prayed, there was this long pause, mm,
1: the awkward I just silence. <laughs>
0: couldn't do it, and finally, the leader of the prayer group said a final prayer, and I knew, boy, I can't do that. And then there were some British uh, aid workers who came to Kiev to to look at the mission because the mission had a lot of aid work. We had a soup kitchen and the medical work, and they came. To, to see if, if it could be supported financially or whatever. And we had dinner at the director's house and they were two women from, from London, I guess, somewhere in the UK, mm-hmm. bright women. And the kind of women I knew at Yale, you know, that really bright. And they started just going to town at the director and saying, how do you believe that? How do you believe this? And I was sitting there trying to be the go-between but the big part of me was saying, "But I believe what they're saying." And right. What they say, I agree is right. with everything. <laughs> what about <And> that? <laughs> the director, after the dinner, he said, "But you didn't support me very much." And uh, well, um, I don't think I can. And then the the ugly part of my story, uh, again cringeworthy, is uh, that we we were given a, a nanny for the children. And I stipulated that the nanny should be an older woman, like a grandmother type, uh, so that there wouldn't be any aspersions or
1: temptations,
0: oh, yeah. et cetera. And yeah, they gave us the suitable lady. Uh, but what I didn't know was that Ukrainian women age a lot faster than American women. And she wasn't actually that much older than me. Oh, right. You know, at first I thought she was. And, she was like a um, breath of fresh air and sunshine when she came and played with the children. And uh, I, I just fell for her. Uh, I mm. was in a bad place. I had a degree from Yale. I was sitting in the rehearsals of the ensemble, turning the pages for the pianist. That, that should just tell you everything mm. there, thinking what have I done? And not believing any of the Christian stuff. And I was, I fell for this lady and uh, for a little, we we went back to the States to raise some more money uh, six months after we arrived. And I thought, well, those feelings will go away. Some absence, you know, from the the thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, physical distance. But it was the opposite, you know, it made the heart grow fonder. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And then there was a brief period of a few weeks where I was living a false life and pretending to be one thing and not the other. And it was excruciatingly painful. Uh, It's not me. I don't know how some men do it for years. I just Mm -hmm. couldn't do it. And I had to come clean and had to make a break. So I sat down the director of the mission and his wife and my wife And it was a bit like an inquisition session. They were on the couch and I was on a chair in front of the couch and I told them, you know, I said, I I'm leaving my marriage today and I'm leaving the mission. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And Mm. uh, I cried so much. I was literally beating my head on the wall when, when everything broke open. And a couple of days later, my wife took the kids back to the States and, the director of the mission told everyone in the mission not to contact me. So they tried to ostracize me. But at that very moment, I got this job offer to teach the Bible. (laughs) Ah, That's the ultimate (laughs)
1: irony. (laughs) In
0: in Kiev, in English, and with a a livable wage. It, It was a Ukrainian salary, but it was enough to get me going. They also wanted me to teach music appreciation and american literature so i had other courses going Mm -hmm. uh, but that was my way of getting out of all that and surviving and then my uh wife it's my ex-wife now she was able to get gather all the support again and we left all the support for her so that she could come back to kiev and continue her mission with the kids so that that worked out well in that regard Mm -hmm. Yeah, she did just move back
1: to the States and take the kids with her.
0: Right, yeah. um, so she was able to come back to Kiev with the kids and, you know, it's always quite ugly, divorce. And it was it tough, be. really tough uh, because she was a missionary and very, very judgmental about mm. what I did. And me too, you know, I was cruel, cruelly judgmental about myself and had to work through all of that guilt uh, during those years, and occasionally it still comes up, but I think I've taken care of that. Uh, Mm -hmm. Then, okay, then teaching the Bible with fresh eyes, sort of exorcised the biblical demons from my life, Uh, and one of the big things was the discovery of the documentary hypothesis. Have you? Oh, yes.
1: I studied Old Testament. I was an Old Testament scholar. There you go. So yeah, that, that was a real that. eye-opener. EDP and everything, yeah. Totally. Bill Housen and all that, those guys,
0: yeah. So you know what I'm talking about? And I thought, yeah. oh my gosh, and it's not Moses. <laughs> and, uh, and all the different perspectives and the political agendas, the biases, uh, that was a real eye-opener and provided a lot of food and material for the lectures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and John Shelby spawns books were very helpful at the time I discovered those. And he opened my eyes to the fact that maybe Paul might have been gay. Mm -hmm. uh, And I investigated that myself. And knowing what I know about guilt projection, it does seem that he was projecting his own guilt feelings onto other people, but also onto his picture of what God was. Mm -hmm. Uh, because if you do a word search in the um, new testament for the wrath of god just that expression almost all of the examples come from paul so he was definitely dealing with something (laughs) he
1: had some issues yeah he had some demons that he was working through
0: (laughs) yeah well i'm thinking too going back
1: to this you talked about the documentary hypothesis and your own deconstruction maybe for those who don't know what that is could you give us a little overview of it and then how did that actually lead into you questioning like you say the mosaic authorship of the pentateuch and things like that what's the Mm -hmm. sort of view what how does that work
0: yeah uh at the time i discovered richard friedman's book called who wrote the bible Mm -hmm. he's he's a uh, jewish scholar and uh then i discovered that there are different names used for God in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And you have Elohim, essentially Elohim, and also Yahweh or Jehovah. And each author uses that name exclusively. They don't cross over and use the other name. So if you take all of those passages in which those names are used, you can actually separate them out and patch them together and create a um, cogent logical narrative of each of those authors. My favorite one is the person called the Yahwist and Harold Bloom, the Yale literary critic has a book called The Book of Jay where he postulates that Jay might've been a woman. And I found that idea quite compelling, Uh, her stories It's the Garden of Eden story. Uh, Some of the stories, Tamar is her story. The story of Rebecca hiding the the idols under the camel's saddle Mm. and then claiming that it was her time of the month. So she got the look under there. (laughs) Yeah, That's right. So uh, her stories have very powerful, crafty, wonderful, proactive women. Even Eve, by the way, she believes the serpent. The serpent wasn't lying. He told her look, you won't die if you eat that fruit.
1: And Um, I'm not
0: telling you anything you don't know, but I guess for the audience in case you haven't thought about that, uh, it's actually Yahweh or Jehovah who's lying because um, Adam and Eve were not created immortal. They were created as mortals. And it was only by eating the fruit of the second tree, the tree of life, that they would gain immortality. And then God comes off looking very petty and jealous, by not letting them eat the fruit of that tree. And he kicks them out of the garden so that they won't become like him. And that's very typical of a Jay story because the men in her stories usually come off looking the worst. And one of her principal male characters is Jehovah himself. And he's always looking foolish. Just for example, the story uh, where Jehovah comes to dinner at Abraham's tent, and uh, Sarah quickly makes up a, a fancy meat dish because Jehovah loves meat. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- I mean, that's the reason he told Noah he wouldn't destroy the earth again because he smelled the meat of the sacrifice, you know. Uh, but uh, anyway, on the way to Sodom and Gomorrah, Jehovah tells Abraham, you know, I'm going to sh- destroy those people because they're pretty bad. And Abraham says, uh, oh, and Jehovah says, and I, I want to give you a lesson on what is justice. hmm. And uh, Abraham says, well, is it truly justice if you destroy the whole place and there's still 100 people, good people in there? So, again, Jehovah looks kind of foolish in this story. And Abraham's able to get him down to, to what, 10 or 20? I forget.
1: Terrible, yeah. He keeps, the number keeps getting less and less. <laughs> right.
0: So what that showed me was that the Bible is not a monolithic thing. Uh, the word of God, the inspired divine mm, word of God. Inerrant inerrant all that stuff that um and obviously we didn't really talk about it in my bible college i don't know about it multinoma but just the first two chapters of genesis are two completely different creation stories different chronology different point
1: mm, and, from points of view yeah
0: and and they can't be put together and yeah. then when you get to the new testament the synoptic problem we were told, oh, it's not really a problem. I remember in Bible college where I tried to patch together all the resurrection accounts from the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John. And I put them all together. I was so proud of myself. <laughs> you I, harmonized I in- the Gospels. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, but in fact, those are four different portrayals of Jesus. And I've struggled to find a way to talk about Jesus In the Gospels, because I used to say, well, Jesus says in John, when Jesus says in Luke, as if it's one character, but actually that's four different characters in a literary work. And now I say, John's Jesus says, Luke's Jesus says, Mm -hmm. uh, to make it clear that that's a character in a book who Jesus actually was it's very hard to determine if he even existed
1: as some some argue
0: yeah mythicists will say
1: jesus never even existed and that's a growing field as well now isn't it coming up in the second half of my conversation with dr david d'andre we're going to get more into this issue of what's called the documentary hypothesis What is it and what's it about? Why is it so important for this issue of deconstruction? And basically what David and I are going to do, we're going to get into this issue as far as it relates to an evangelical or a Christian questioning scripture. That's one of the sort of pillars. If you start questioning the inerrancy, the inspiration of the Bible, so many of us were taught as I was growing up in a fundamentalist church, going to a very conservative Bible college and seminary. That was one of the pillars, the bedrocks of our faith. And if you question the inspiration, the in- inerrancy, the infallibility of the Bible, then your whole faith could crumble. And that's exactly what happened. We're also going to talk about David's new book, The Issue of This Toxicity of Calvinism. Why is that so important also to deconstruct, especially as David is doing from a very academic point of view? So stay tuned for that coming up in the second half. I just wanted to tell you what's coming up in the next few episodes here on Mindship Podcast. We have got a conversation with returning guest, Catherine Stewart. And of course, Catherine is the author of the two excellent books, The Good News Club, as well as The Power Worshippers. She's been on the show talking about those two books before. If you haven't heard those episodes in preparation for this conversation that I had with her the other day, you should go back and listen to those. She just wrote an article in The New Republic. She's done a lot of journalism as well as her books and she's talking about new developments on the Christian right, I should say the Christian political right. And so this is a really good conversation with Catherine Stewart. And then I also talked to Rachel Hunt. She's from the Recovering From Religion organization, and this is the organization that was founded by Dr. Daryl Ray along with some other people. And she's kind of an ambassador. She's one of the sort of lay counselors for the RFR, the Recovering From Religion. they're doing some fundraising activities now and we had a really good conversation about what the rfr is all about how you can get involved in either if you need help you need support they offer up a variety of means for you to have support if you're questioning your religious beliefs or worrying about how you move forward after leaving a cult or religion or whatever it might be there's counselors like rachel and if you want to become one of those volunteers you want to get involved in terms of supporting other people, we talk about that as well. So that is a really good conversation with Rachel Hunt from the Recovering From Religion organization. And I've got some other stuff lined up as well. I've been in contact with my very good friend, Janice Selby. Her Court 2022, the Conference on Religious Trauma, is coming up just in a couple of months. I'm actually going to be one of the presenters there. I'm doing a presentation on evangelical involvement in politics. So I'm gonna be talking about dominion theology and the Christian right and all these other topics as well. There's gonna be loads of other just outstanding guests that she's having at court 2022. So we're gonna be doing a chat on that coming up very soon. And I've also been in contact with another very good friend, Frank Schaefer. He is going to be coming back in at some point here. We're just looking to line that up. And it's kind of funny because I don't know what's happening here in 2022, but I've just been talking to a lot of previous guests. They've been doing tons of work there. I'm I'm just keeping in touch with them. And I don't know why that is actually happening. But for some reason, I've just had all these episodes lately of past guests that I've had But it's fascinating to me to stay in touch with people and find out what they're doing. You know, it's not like it's just a one-off episode where you talk to someone like a Frank Schaefer or Janice Selby or Dr. Joseph McSkimming or Catherine Stewart. People I've talked to several times before. There's no rule to this podcasting thing, is there? You can have... Guests back on, and it's really cool to kind of keep in touch with them and find out what they're working on in terms of current research, current projects, current work. So some really cool stuff coming up. Also wanted to give a huge thank you to Rebecca Drumsta. She dropped in this month, the month of February 2022. She was our guest for the Mindshift Zoom call, and that was a fantastic discussion. We talked about her book When Family Hurts. That is also going to be available at some point on the MindShift podcast Facebook page. I'll put that video up of that call if you want to drop in to see that. And then next month in March, we've got Michael from the Religious Addicts Anonymous. He's going to be our guest for our MindShift Zoom call. And of course, we also have our patrons only call that we tend to do about the first weekend of the month. And then in April, we've got this guy that's on this podcast now, Dr. David DeAndre. He's going to be our guest for the April Mind Shift Zoom call. And I'm also working on seeing if I can get Katherine Stewart to come back maybe in uh, May. So that's going to be really cool too, if we can get her to come back in. And so we've got some fantastic guests. These are benefits that you get for being a Patreon supporter of the show. And as always, the links for that are in the show notes. So let's get on back into the second half of this conversation with Dr. David D'Andre as we continue to look at what it means to no longer be a professional Christian. Going back, I, I'm fascinated by this documentary hypothesis. I want to keep returning to that because sure. I, I ran afoul of that myself when I was in seminary. And it's interesting. So, in the context, historically, Take us back to that. Why is it so important, though? For really, it was the fundamentalist, wasn't it? Because a lot of this comes out of Germanic theology in the nineteenth century, wasn't it? Early nineteenth, late nineteenth, early twentieth century, which then spread across to Britain and America. And you have the liberal theologians, and then the fundamentalists that reacted against that. So why is that such a big deal that Moses wrote the Pentateuch? I mean, that was one of the fundamentals of the faith, and you people would say, you're not even a Christian if you deny that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. So that's got to be a big factor in terms of your own deconstruction. Like you said, your view of the Bible itself as the inspired inerrant word of God written by Moses, at least the first five books anyway.
0: Right. Well, evangelicals will come back at you and they'll say, but Jesus said, Moses said, or Moses wrote, right. Uh, And of course, if Jesus did say that. He was just referring to the Hebrew scriptures as it was commonly referred to. Uh, But it was Jewish rabbinical scholars in the Middle Ages that noticed, first of all, there's a description of Moses' death. Obviously, he didn't write that. (laughs) Um, Then, if you keep going back, you'll discover there's a lot of other things he couldn't have written. And the... Other thing is that there are two versions of the same events very often, and one of them is when the people are thirsty, and they, uh, I think it was at Meribah, uh, the, the people had no water, they were very thirsty, and God tells Moses to speak to the rock, and the rock will pour forth with water. Now in one version, Moses speaks to the rock, and Everything works as planned. Fine, yeah. In the other version, Moses gets angry and he strikes the rock, and for that, Moses is not allowed, as well as Aaron, are not allowed to enter the promised land. Now, uh, people began to notice that there's a different perspective there, and if you keep going back, you'll discover that there's one author who's always promoting Aaron and his priesthood and making Moses look bad in his stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the other author, which is probably P, the priestly author, he promotes Mosaic and the Mosaic priesthood over Aaron. And we see this clash of point of views in the story with Pharaoh and the 10 plagues at It's like follow the bouncing staff um, instead of the bouncing Mm -hmm. ball. Uh, At one point, Moses is using his staff. At another point, he gives it to Aaron for Aaron to use his staff. So you, you have this struggle for authority. And that's the point of view of those particular authors pushing or promoting the priesthood and their order of priesthood. And that was so important because the priest's were not allowed to own land. And uh, the only way, the only perk for them was that they could take a portion of the the, uh, sacrifice, the best cuts of meat, Mm -hmm. let's say. And that's the perk that they had. And so they really needed to promote their their livelihood. And we see that uh, put into the first creation story, which is the priestly author, P. Uh, who makes uh, the Sabbath rest integral in the creation story. Now, if God rested on the Sabbath, we should too, right? Sure. <laughs> so that's, that's where you see that point of view. It's a bias. And once you begin to see this bias, and then you add to that uh, J and the promotion of female characters, there's no way that could be, uh, one point of view from the Holy spirit whispering in everyone's ear. Mm-hmm. And this is very dangerous to evangelicals because it's quite obvious that you just can't hold to uh, divine inspiration mm-hmm. and infallibility of the text. It's
1: true. I ran into it when I was doing my MA degree at seminary. I did my MA degree on the book of Habakkuk in the old Testament. And mm-hmm. I was challenged to talk about the literary sources you know, form criticism, source criticism, and all which is another piece of that documentary hypothesis. In it, your argument is that there were at least four literary sources that made up the Pentateuch, and I argue that there were multiple sources that made up the Book of Habakkuk, which is only a small little book. But when I went into my second reader's office, I'd written a couple of chapters on this thesis. And he literally blew up, he screamed at me, I mean, literally screamed at me, and I walked into a buzzsaw, not knowing that he was coming from this sort of evangelical fundamentalist point of view. And I think now looking at it, I can see that's what he was so upset about, not that I was saying XYZ about the book of Habakkuk, but rather that I was arguing that it wasn't the product of one single human author who was inspired and therefore inerrant. And so for him, I was opening that Pandora's box, which is what the fundamentalists said that the liberals, the so-called liberals were doing, weren't they? They're saying the second you talk about multiple sources to make up a book or a series of books, now you've destroyed our nice model of inspiration and inerrancy. But
0: isn't it such a relief to remove that burden burden from your mind, that you have Mm. to make everything fit, and it all has to be harmonized. Uh, Once I lifted that off, I saw the Bible with new eyes as a wonderful literary text, and I gave myself the freedom to critique that text and look at the author's motivations, just like I was doing in my American Lit class. Sure, Um, yeah,
1: should be subjected to the same Sort of rules of interpretation as any other text exactly yeah and Just you because know you it's have special it's the word of god you know that's the argument
0: and it's on a special plane somehow you can't question it david <laughs> no. <laughs> no you couldn't question any of that stuff and we were never told anything about the documentary hypothesis at pcb it, uh, even the synoptic problem was told it's not a
1: problem
0: problem in air quotes. (laughs) Yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah. We've harmonized the gospels. What about this issue of Calvinism? Because something I was thinking about when you were talking about the toxic theology, that's equated with Calvinism. This is obviously part of your deconstruction because when I was doing my PhD, one of the chapters I wrote was on Jonathan Edwards, you know, sinners in Uh the hands of an angry God. I did a lot of research on his backstory and one of the things I came across—I don't know if you've researched Edwards at all. I'm sure you have, as a as a good ex-Calvinist. But as a young man, he was tormented by his Calvinist sort of framework because what I what I learned about him was that he he had this sort of uh, uh, you know polarity. Like on the one hand, am I a deluded hypocrite or am I really one of the elect? And he couldn't figure out if he was truly saved or not because he was operating within that Calvinist framework in what 18th century America. So. Th- that's an example isn't it, of this sort of toxic theology what is it about calvinism in particular though
0: yeah well um having gone to yale there is a connection with jonathan edwards mm-hmm. i have to name drop a little bit there but oh, absolutely uh, but his archive is at yale and i remember when i was doing my research in music history uh in the rare book library the guy next to me had one of jonathan edwards manuscripts and I, yeah. I wasn't really, I didn't care about it at that point. But yeah, didn't I didn't know who he was. Course, really. I, I cared in the sense that, oh, Jonathan Edwards, holy Ooh, cow! yeah. And I don't know. It might even have been the handwritten notes for "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God." Wow. And I, I looked over his shoulder and asked him about it. And um, and one of the colleges at Yale is called Jonathan Edwards College. Mm-hmm. So there, there is a connection there. And his church was in Enfield, Connecticut, so it's not far from not New far. India. Um, But the thing about uh, Edwards and Calvinism, but that, that famous sermon of Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, is it's this fear mongering about hell. And it's based on the Calvinist view of self, view of man, that we were born in sin. So with God, it's one strike and you're out. And that one strike is just being born. Mm -hmm. Original sin. Yeah. And so it's based on original sin, total depravity. But what evangelicals do today, as they did during Edward's time, is they use the threat of hell as uh, a way of manipulation. And they simply cannot be without hell. They can't do away with their hell. Can't live without it. And Calvinists, modern Calvinists, will claim the same, and then they will give you gory details about what hell is like. Um, you'll find sermons by John Hagee and uh, John MacArthur. Yeah. Well, MacArthur, like John came, Piper, Piper though, as well, and oh, and uh, even Mark
1: Driscoll, the neo-Calvinists, and all that.
0: Oh, Driscoll's sermon—it's—it's it's gone viral on YouTube or. He's yeah. raving and ranting. God hates you. He doesn't think you're funny. Mm, he doesn't yeah. even think you're know?
1: <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So, uh, God actively hates you right now.
0: Yeah. So, But people wouldn't believe that stuff if they didn't buy into the idea that they were totally depraved, miserable sinners. And we're taught that from day one. And I don't know about you, but I asked the Lord into my heart more than once when I was a kid. Oh yeah. When, when we had an even, even, I mean, uh, evangelist, his name was oh, Jack okay. Van Impey. Oh, he i remember looked like, him. Like, yep. He looked like Bella Lugosi, you know. Yeah, and uh, a
1: hair, big pompadour <laughs> hair.
0: Yeah, <laughs> he, I prayed this
1: prayer thousands of times too, yeah. just to make yeah. sure, you know. Yeah. Like anxiety. When, when or... I went
0: forward. Sorry, I, I, I interrupted, but. Uh, I went forward, but I was the preacher's kid and everyone was watching, I went forward. I was about six or seven. Uh, The next year I raised my hand and um, then I thought, well, I can't go forward again. I mean, everyone's gonna see me go forward again. So then I sort of cowered down and Jack Van Impey wouldn't stop. He just, you know, just as I am was playing on the organ and he, he kept roving. He said, I know there was a hand in this part of the congregation. Where was that hand? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And the other thing we grew up in fear of, as you know very well, was being left behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had that film, A Thief in the Night, at our church in the 70s. And um, I used to run home every day and check the house and make sure my mom was still there. Because if she wasn't there, I, I knew I was left behind because yeah. she was definitely going to be taken.
1: Right. You were definitely going to be left behind. I had the same rapture anxiety. I saw the movie when I was a kid, probably 10 or 11 years old. They showed it on a Sunday night in my church in Seattle area. I was terrified for years and years and years that I was I was going to be left behind just like those people in the movie.
0: Yeah, yeah, we, we probably are of the same generation, I guess. Yeah um because it was in around 72 three four five mid 70s yep yeah and um the other thing that was really big at our church was the um um the evangelistic method of coral ridge presbyterian james kennedy
1: oh yeah i think a big christian you. nationalist too yeah massive yeah
0: but um uh, that our church wanted to introduce this program what was it the five-step thing mm-hmm. well you um, did
1: evangelism explosion and some other things yeah
0: evangelism explosion uh and here's the, the other irony of it uh when i became a minister of music uh there was uh, the largest church music workshop for church musicians in the country was at coral ridge press mm. and my church sent me there and uh, I was uh, just trying I was new I I didn't know how to be a good minister of music so they had this big rehearsal with the choir and orchestra and I snuck up to the pulpit and behind the pulpit there's there are two benches where you can sit and you can see the stage and I Mm -hmm. do call it a stage Um, and I was sitting there like a little mouse church mouse watching the the rehearsal tried to soak it all in and all of a sudden someone swept into the pulpit and started reading a narration in this big booming stained glass voice and god said you know that kind of voice oh yeah oh my gosh it was kennedy it's him yeah and then he sat down on the bench opposite me and there we were like rubbing knees looking at each other and i couldn't believe that at that stage in my life, I was still a goody two-shoes Christian. You know, I was-
1: Yeah, he was huge too. (laughs)
0: And then his music director, his name was Roger McMurrin, he came over during the break and I met Roger. Roger immediately took a shine to me and he offered me a job a couple of days later on the spot. Hmm. Uh, But then eventually Roger left uh, Coral Ridge uh, because he had done a little missions project in Kiev and he fell in love with the Ukrainian people. He left Coral Ridge and then went to Kiev and founded the music mission there. Ah, right. so and all those years, yeah, all those years while I was doing my graduate work, he called me every year and he said, when are you going to come work for me? When are you going to come work for me? So when I finished Yale, I went over to Kiev and checked it all out and Roger is such a charismatic person in a good way. I mean, he's um, he's a real ideas person, bigger than life. Mm-hmm. And I, I was just in his. his yeah, um,
1: in his thrall, so to speak.
0: Yeah, exactly. And uh, so then he's the one who convinced me to come work with him. So that's another small world story.
1: Wow. You have D. James Kennedy to thank for all that. Yeah. Christian <laughs> nationalist, dominion theology, Calvinist, all that, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm interested to find out. So you've got this book project going. How is it going to help people in terms of their own faith journey or deconstruction? Obviously, we're talking about the toxicity of Calvinism. You know, want to be am I one of the elect? Or am I non elect? Am I going to hell? Am I you know what? What's my what's my situation? How does that help people?
0: Yeah, well, I think a large part of the book is research where I go back and find the original ideas. And I was quite surprised to find that Calvin's ideas are primarily based on Augustine's. Mm -hmm. If you search hard enough, you will find embedded in Calvin's words, in his commentaries and uh, everything else he wrote, you'll find phrases from Augustine. So I traced it back to Augustine and then his debate with Pelagius about free will and all those things. And my aim in that regard is just to show people the ideas themselves. If you just present the ideas like a good reporter, if you have both sides giving their side, a good reporter lets them speak. And then an intelligent person, which I hope it's the type of person who would read my book, an intelligent person could say, well, I don't think uh, Augustine is anywhere near right I prefer Pelagius and then later you get to the debate between Luther and Erasmus on free will and uh, an intelligent person will say but Luther isn't backing this up with anything he's just Not convincing he's just making assumptions uh, and Erasmus who is far more cogent then you get the debate Uh, Well, you get Calvin himself, and then after Calvin, of course, Arminius, and the debate between the Arminians and the Calvinists. And I would hope that the people could see for themselves the the more rational, intelligent view are not the Calvinists. Um, But then I also present modern people who are leaving the church and the problems they've been having and the struggles they've gone through. And the realizations they've gone through, the first big one for just about everyone is that hell does not exist. That Mm. we we can refer to Carlton Pearson, for example, who started to tell his congregation about it and in no time loses the whole congregation. Yeah, he lost
1: everything.
0: More of a universalist point of view. Yeah. And there's some prominent podcasters like Rhett and Link. For example, Mm -hmm. uh, who have recently shared their deconstruction process. And it usually starts with the realization that God, if God is love and not just shows love when he wants to. um, And the way I say, you know, God is the very quality of love. Then God couldn't do anything unloving or God would cease being what God is. And that right away puts the end to hell.
1: Mm-hmm. That's problematic. Well, look what happened to Rob Bell when he came out with Love Wins years ago. I remember I wrote a paper where I did a review of the book reviews. Uh-huh. I found it so fascinating. I found yeah. the book reviews of the book uh, yeah. by fundamentalists and evangelicals. They were universally slating him for being a heretic and worse. So I actually wrote a paper about how they, treat, how they reviewed his book, you know, so that was a fast yeah. one guy from the Southern Baptist Seminary wrote a 10-page book review. I mean, that's unheard of, isn't it? A 10-page yeah. book review of Love Wins denouncing well, it point by point by point as heresy. Yeah, you know, That's I don't know a thorough review.
0: Yeah. Have you heard of Mike Lacona?
1: He I've wrote, heard of him,
0: yeah. Yeah. I, I haven't actually read his book, but he wrote a book of 700 pages defending the literal resurrection of Jesus. That, so he's defending it, and okay. he's teaching at a Southern Baptist uh, seminary, maybe the one in Nashville. I'm not sure, but he uh, and he's a big. He was a prominent leader of the Southern Baptist Missionary Alliance, or whatever it is. Because mm-hmm. uh, I'm not a Southern Baptist, but um, anyway, in the midst of 700 pages, he said that Matthew's comment that hundreds of people came out of their graves. When Jesus gave up the ghost, mm-hmm. walked around Jerusalem, and <laughs> walked around, uh, he said it might be literary license.
1: That's oh, all
0: he said—a literary license, out. or the use of Greek hyperbole when they talk about their heroes. Uh, well, I did a, a long thing just like you, looking at the critique and all of the the. The, the storm that that created just that little bit oh we cannot let even one word of matthew be called literary license mm-hmm. or else the whole thing goes you know well it's true <laughs> what they're saying is true but mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, yeah that's that's cr- the yeah
1: they can't allow a crack to be found because i remember yeah. my mentor at seminary dr john sailhammer who passed away a few years ago he wrote mm-hmm. a book called genesis unbound in which he suggested that the author of Genesis doesn't really care if the earth might be billions of years old. Oh my gosh, that caused a firestorm as well <laughs> for similar kind of reasons. You can't possibly suggest that the earth is billions of years old. Uh, it's got to be six to 10,000 years old. And he yeah. was, you know, vilified and all that. So you can see those reactions. It gets like my professor <laughs> screaming at me
0: you know, over the book of Habakkuk <laughs> in, in his but office. We, but we know it was created with an apparent age,
1: Yes, that was the argument. It was made to look maybe look, billions of years old, but it's actually Adam, six to 10,000 years old. Adam
0: was one minute old, but he was actually appearing to be 30. Absolutely.
1: Years old. Yeah, it's, it's magical thinking, isn't it? Really? Well, listen, it's been almost an hour. I really enjoyed chatting with you and finally meeting up. How can people find you? I know there's more we can talk about for sure, but what's the best place to get a hold of you and sort of read your work? I know I read your posts on Facebook. Is that the best place to find
0: you? Yeah, my personal account on Facebook, just my name, David DeAndre, is where I'm posting excerpts of the work in progress. I also have a professional Facebook account, David DeAndre PhD, where you could contact me through that. But if you find me on Facebook, the regular page and send me a private message, uh, we can get through there too. It's okay. That's That's the best place. Basically where I'm mostly where I'm active at these days.
1: Mm-hmm. And then one last thing, maybe we can chat about it after we finish recording. But I'm okay. interested to find out. We do our mind shift Zoom calls every month, which is a group call. I would mm-hmm. love to have you come back at some point in the future if you're up for it. We could maybe you could meet the people in our closed Facebook group and have a fascinating discussion. So we can chat and maybe figure something out around that. So
0: thank well, you I've been so delighted. much. I'd be yeah. delighted to do that. Thank you. I've
1: enjoyed meeting a kindred spirit all the way from Canada by way of America. As I'm over here today, we're both expats. So thank you, Dr. David DeAndre. Thoroughly enjoyed meeting with you and chatting with you and we'll do this again.
0: Okay, I I certainly hope so. I enjoyed it very much, thank you.